Welcome back to the Rules Plus podcast. The Siblings Project continues, which I hope you'll recall is my ongoing consideration of 15 pairs of rules concepts that I've characterized as siblings separated at birth that are nevertheless closely related and that have ripple effects on each other. In episode 5, I covered the kicker versus passive dyad, and in episode 7, I covered the pass versus intentional grounding dyad. Beginning with last week's episode, I'd launched discussion of the next four dyads, all related to the kicking game, an ongoing conversation for the next several episodes. Those sibling pairs are free kick versus scrimmage kick, field goal versus the try, field goal versus punt, and scrimmage kick that crosses the neutral zone versus scrimmage kick that doesn't cross the neutral zone. But before I resume discussion of free kick versus scrimmage kick with an interesting play scenario that I left hanging at the end of last week's episode, let me share one highlight from our AFOA Rules Plus study session this past Monday evening. The highlight is that our study session was the first one in 46 months that was in-person, up close and personal. Since the COVID-19 pandemic, all our AFOA meetings have been virtual. We had last gathered in one room on October 21st, 2019. Perhaps our new normal is edging back to the old normal we have all missed. Okay, on to today's business. More background information for the free kick versus scrimmage kick discussion. I closed last week's episode by giving some homework in the form of a seemingly straightforward play scenario to think about over the past week. But don't worry if your dog ate your homework. In Rules Plus, there are no pop quizzes because we all know the final exam is coming every Friday evening. I'm going to speak extensively about this scenario, even though it may appear to be a little off the main topic of examining the free kick versus scrimmage kick relationship. But I think that, in fact, considering this scenario provides important background for grasping the concept of what constitutes a scrimmage kick, because in this scenario, all the elements for a scrimmage kick are present. The play begins with a snap. Team A is in a scrimmage kick formation. The punter, in fact, does kick the ball. The ball does not cross the neutral zone and thus remains in play. And the down ends with, as luck would have it, Team A possessing the ball. It's easy to recognize a free kick down. The activity begins with the kick of a ball positioned on the ground, the positioning of players of both teams is heavily regulated, and the kick is executed without pressure from Team B defenders. A scrimmage kick looks like a scrimmage down. A free kick looks nothing like a scrimmage down. The difference actually is the first, perhaps most obvious distinction between the two poles of the free kick-scrimmage kick dyad. 
Before I discuss the additional distinguishing characteristics and the several parallel features of both kinds of kicks, it's worth our time to consider more thoroughly what the salient features are for a scrimmage down to be a scrimmage kick down. Here's the play scenario I left with you at the end of last week's episode. On third and 28 from the A35, with the clock stopped at 15 seconds before halftime, Team A wants to play it safe and lines up in a scrimmage kick formation. By punting on third down, Team A thinks that there will be less pressure on the punter to get the kick off in case something goes wrong. Nevertheless, punter A8 muffs the snap at the A22. He chases the bounding ball and kicks it from the ground at the A19 just before B16 was about to recover it. A26 recovers the ball at the A30 and stumbles forward to the A33, where he is tackled inbounds. What is the ruling? At first glance, I find that two things are quite clear here. First, the play sure looks like a scrimmage kick. After all, there was indeed a snap and someone kicked the ball. Second, the play also sure looks like a foul was committed. After all, we rarely see American footballs treated as if they're those round footballs that athletes in shorts kick around everywhere else in the world. But while it's intuitively apparent there's a kick play and a foul here, the devil, as the saying goes, is in the details. It's for plays like this that you and your crew should have a standard checklist of questions to answer to debrief what has happened, much like pilots with thousands of hours in a particular aircraft do in configuring their plane for landing. The first steps in the play debriefing checklist, of course, should be to answer three fundamental questions. One, what is the foul? Two, which team committed the foul? Three, what is the result of the play if the penalty is declined? After these facts are determined, there are at least five additional details necessary to solve the puzzle of what to do. Four, what is the penalty yardage? Five, what is the enforcement spot? Six, which team will next have possession? Seven, what will the next down be? And eight, what will the status of the game clock be? Answering the first three questions may not be as easy as you'd think because answering question one may not be as easy as you'd think. So I'll start our debriefing with question one. What is the foul here? You can't answer questions two and three, nor four through eight, before you know the answer to question one. I warn you, a lengthy discussion is about to follow. You'll recall that last week's discussion to set up talk about kicking downs focused on Rule 216, where eight types of legal kicks are defined, 
though in a seemingly disjointed way. The eight types are punt, drop kick, place kick, free kick, kickoff, scrimmage kick, return kick, and field goal attempt. I ask then whether there is an organizing principle to indicate some hierarchy or to discern a web of relationships among these eight kicking game elements that specify what kicks are legal. Presumably, we determine whether a kick is illegal by judging whether it belongs in one of these eight categories. I suggested then that the categories are based on answering three questions about a player who intentionally puts his foot to the ball. What does a player do? When does he do it? Why does he do it? Of those three questions, one of them appears to be particularly relevant for this play scenario. What did A8 do? If you look at Rule 216, it's clear that what A8 did not do is make a punt, Article 2, make a drop kick, Article 3, make a place kick, Article 4, or make a free kick, Article 5. Therefore, by Article 1, the kick A8 made was not legal. Article 1 of Rule 216 says clearly that, quote, a legal kick is a punt, drop kick, or place kick made according to the rules. Kicking the ball in any other manner is illegal, end quote. It's also clear that the kick A8 made was not a scrimmage kick. Article 7 of Rule 216 says that, quote, a scrimmage kick is a punt, drop kick, or field goal place kick, end quote. So what A8 did was neither legal nor a scrimmage kick. Having determined that A8 indeed did something illegal, the challenge becomes determining precisely what foul he committed. The simple answer would seem to be that he made an illegal kick. We've already seen that 216.1 tells us, in essence, that whatever is not a legal kick is an illegal kick. That's not very helpful, but perhaps you can find more help under the topic of legal and illegal kicks in 6.3.10 or in the summary of penalties in Appendix G. Well, the language of 6.3.10 mirrors the language of 2.16.1, simply confirming that punts, drop kicks, and place kicks are legal. But the rule adds one subtle but critical detail. While 2.16.1 refers simply to a legal kick, 6.3.10 refers to a legal scrimmage kick. In fact, all of Section 3 of Rule 6 is about scrimmage kicks specifically. We have already determined that what A8 did was not a scrimmage kick, so the foul A8 committed is not covered by either Rule 2 or Rule 6. If you need additional confirmation of this, in Appendix G, the foul for illegal kick references 6.3.10, which we've found only applies to scrimmage kicks. 
The bad news is, if what A8 did was not a scrimmage kick, either legal or illegal, we have another puzzle to solve. What kind of play happened during this down? The good news is, if we can identify what kind of play happened during this down, we should have an excellent clue to decide what the foul was that A8 committed and how and where to enforce the penalty for it. Do you know how many types of plays can happen in a football game? Rule 230, titled Play Classification, has the answer. Four types, as covered by the articles 1 through 4. The types are forward pass play, free kick play, scrimmage kick play, running play. To be precise, which is usually important in understanding football rules, as it is here, a play is different than a down. Rule 271 defines a down as, quote, a unit of the game that starts after the ball is ready for play with a legal snap or legal free kick and ends when the ball becomes dead, end quote. So while a casual fan or play-by-play -play announcer may refer to a down in which there's, say, a pick six as an exciting play, officials, and certainly Rules Plus listeners, would properly refer to it as an exciting down, because there can be multiple plays during a down. For a pick six, for example, there were probably two plays, a forward pass play and a running play. But there may be even more than that. I will not step into that quagmire in this discussion. That's why we have to determine how many and what kind of play or plays occurred during this muffed snap by the punter scenario. We've eliminated two possibilities. Even though A8 intentionally put his foot to the ball while it was resting on the ground, there was not a kick play during this down because a scrimmage kick did not occur. There also was clearly not a forward pass play during this down. So that leaves us with a running play. How can that be? There was a brief run by A26 from the A30 to the A33, but how do we account for the action before A26 recovered the loose ball? That question leads us to consideration of what a running play is. The answer, of course, is in 234, which says, quote, a running play is any live ball action other than during a free kick play, a scrimmage kick play, or a legal forward pass play, end quote. And key to dealing with running plays is the definition of a run, which is, quote, that segment of a running play during which a ball carrier has possession. If a ball carrier loses possession by a fumble, backward pass, or illegal forward pass, the spot where the run ends, reference to 225-8, is the yard line where the ball carrier loses possession. End quote.
Crucial to dealing with the running play is to know that, quote, the running play includes the run and the loose ball action before a player gains or regains possession or the ball is declared dead, end quote. The next question to answer, therefore, is how many running plays occurred during the down in this scenario. What's tricky here is that it appears there were two or perhaps three loose ball periods where a loose ball is defined as in 2-2-3 as, quote, a live ball not in player possession during a running play, end quote. Of course, a loose ball is also possible during kick or pass plays as well, but our concern here is with one, two, or several running plays. During the down in this play scenario then, when was the ball not in player possession? It would seem that the first and only time the ball was in player possession was when A26 recovered it. Punter A8 touched the ball, but he never possessed it. Possession is defined in 241 as, quote, custody of a dead ball to be snapped or free kicked, end quote, and, quote, when a player has the ball firmly in their grasp by holding it or controlling it, end quote. As odd as it seems, when you put together the concepts of down, running play, possession, and loose ball, the down in this scenario comprised two running plays. The first running play began with the snap and ended when A26 possessed the ball. That first running play included the possession by the snapper and the loose ball period after the ball became loose because of the snapper's backward pass. The second running play included the possession by A26 with no interval when the ball was loose. For each running play, there is always a spot where the run ends. In the first running play, the run ended where the snapper lost possession, which was on or actually just barely behind the neutral zone. In the second running play, the run ended where A26 was downed and the ball became dead by rule. Finally, we can zero in on what foul A8 committed. Rule 9.4 addresses batting and kicking with a provision in 9.4 that, quote, a player shall not kick a loose ball, a forward pass, or a ball being held for a place kick by an opponent. These illegal acts do not change the status of the loose ball, end quote. We can all agree that this is the what that A8 did during this down. A8 kicked a ball that was loose from a backward pass, and what A26 recovered was a backward pass. Solving the final puzzle is now straightforward. The penalty specified in 944 calls for 10 yards and loss of down for fouls by Team A. Significantly, the penalty does not specify an enforcement spot, so we must use a basic spot with the three-in-one principle in effect. For a running play that ends behind the neutral zone, 10-2-2-D-1-A specifies that the basic spot 
is the previous spot. Note two additional things here. Note one, 10.2.2b lists four exceptions to applying the three-in-one principle for fouls by Team A behind the neutral zone during any type of play. Those four exceptions, illegal use of hands, holding, illegal block, and personal foul. In those cases only, the penalty is enforced from the previous spot and not from the spot of the foul, as would otherwise be called for if the three-in-one principle applied, because the foul occurred behind the basic spot. Note 2. Even if A26's running play had ended beyond the neutral zone, enforcement would be the same, because the foul by A8 occurred during the first run, which ended where the snapper released the ball. The run by A26, the second running play during this down, is irrelevant to penalty enforcement because the foul occurred during the first running play. If Team B accepts the penalty, and why wouldn't it do so, Team A will be penalized half the distance to the goal line from the spot of the foul at the A19 with a loss of down. Team A will have fourth and 53 and a half. It turns out that it was prescient by Team A to have tried to punt on third down. And yet, there is still one more matter to address. When should the clock start on the next play? And does a 10-second runoff option exist for Team B? Does the referee start the clock when he signals the ball ready for play, or does it start when the ball is snapped? Remember, there were 15 seconds left in the half at the snap, so the clock probably shows a single digit by now. The question to answer is, why did the clock stop? We know it did not stop for a run out of bounds, for an incomplete pass, for a foul that stopped the clock immediately or that prevented the snap, for an injury, for a helmet coming completely off, or for an award of a first down to Team A or to Team B. What the clock did stop for was to complete a penalty. Therefore, by 3-3-2-E-4, the clock will start on the referee's signal. The referee, or more likely, the wing official near the Team B's coach should remind that coach what will happen with the clock so the coach can make an informed decision. If Team B has a timeout left, it should use it now. For many of you listening who are experienced officials, most or all of this reasoning may have occurred to you as you considered this play over the past week. If it didn't, then this has been a particularly valuable exercise. And even if it did occur to you, you should find it useful to consider explicitly which and how many distinct rules contribute critical information for getting this play right. And you should find it useful to read the actual language in those rules, both to help you be certain of what you need to do and to help you explain in rulebook language what you're going to do 
for a Team A coach who may be confused or worse about why he's being penalized so severely for this foul. For others of you who are less experienced, this should have been a valuable exercise to see how many rules you need to know, where you can find them in the rules book, and how you can put their separate information inputs together to reason through a very unusual, but certainly not implausible, situation. The more familiar you are with the precise vocabulary and wording of sibling rules, the more comfortable you'll be with attacking a complex problem systematically, calmly, and correctly. To summarize this last point about understanding the family tree of applicable rules, I list at least these 14 rules that come into play in sorting out what this play situation calls for. 223, definition of loose ball. 241A, definition of player possession. 241B3, definition of team possession. 271, definition of down. 216, kicks and kicking the ball. 225-8E, spot where a run ends. 227-7, definition of runner and ball carrier. 234-C, running play and spot where a run ends. 332-E4, starting and stopping the clock. 6310, Legal and illegal kicks. 8-7-1 and 2. Responsibility, impetus, and initial impetus. 9-4-4. Four, four, illegally kicking ball. 10-2-2-B. Exceptions to the 3-in-1 principle. And 10-2-2-D-1-A. Basic spots for running plays. The fundamental lesson here is to really understand what a scrimmage kick and a free kick are, and to really understand that many or most scrimmage kick downs and free kick downs comprise more than one play. I'll close this lengthy discussion with the promise that I will, in next week's episode, finally get to comparing in detail scrimmage kicks to free kicks. I already made one comparison at the end of last week's episode. You'll recall that I speculated about why there's a difference between how kicks that go out of bounds are treated. A free kick out of bounds, untouched by Team B, is a foul, of course, whereas a punt out of bounds isn't. I'll get to additional points of comparison. I promise. Here's a sneak peek at items on my secret menu for next week. Are the sibling kick rules aligned or not in how they treat touchbacks, fair catches, illegal touching, fouls by Team A, fouls by Team B, downs with fouls by both teams, downs with runs by both teams?
I hope that's a sufficient teaser to bring you back next week for my usual ad hoc segment with a highlight or two from our Rules Plus meeting, and then for my continuing segment of Rule Siblings, still focusing on the dyad of free kick versus scrimmage kick. Remember, if you're interested in information about AFOA, email us at recruiting at afoa.ws, visit our website at www.austinfootballofficials.org, or call us at 512-298-2987. Till next time, have a great week.